Hello. Welcome to the legends of King Arthur and his knights. Chapter 10. Sir Uwain Takes the Blame Poor King Arthur. Just as he had succeeded in ridding himself of his enemies, things at home had turned sour. His most trusted adviser and friend, Merlin, had been buried under a rock in Cornwall, never to be seen again. His sister, Morgan Le Fay, had plotted against him, stolen Excalibur and its scabbard, and tried to kill him. Arthur was on his way home from his adventures with Sir Ontslake, and was keen to get there quickly, before any more trouble started. He and his party travelled fast, and they were soon only one day from Camelot. They gratefully rested for a night at an abbey, where they were handsomely fed by their nuns. King Arthur and Sir Ontslake, weary from their adventures and travelling, each went to a room in the abbey and went to bed. There they slept very well. Back in Camelot, evil forces were at work. Morgan Le Fay had been found out. There was no doubt in King Arthur's mind that she was a traitor, and so she had nothing to lose. The villainous sorceress made up her mind to have another go at trying to remove her brother from the throne. Morgan's spies found out where Arthur was resting for the night, and Morgan, determined on treachery, rode through the night to get there. When she arrived, she persuaded the nuns to tell her where Arthur was sleeping. After all, she was the king's sister, so why shouldn't they tell her? Be gentle, said the mother superior. Your poor brother has had virtually no sleep for three nights. He needs his rest. A very tired King Arthur was exactly what Morgan was hoping for. This would make her evil aims even easier to achieve. She crept into his room. Sure enough, Arthur was dead to the world. The exhausted king was snoring loudly and would clearly need more than a tiptoeing woman in his room to wake him up. Morgan crept over to the bed. She saw what she wanted. Leaning against the bed was Excalibur. Morgan Le Fay had managed to steal her brother's sword once before. Now was her chance to do it again. Silently Morgan reached out for Excalibur. Nervously she wrapped her right hand around the sheathed blade and drew the sword towards her. Arthur stirred. Morgan realised why. In his sleep Arthur was holding tightly on to the sword handle. Morgan let go of the sword and slunk back into a dark corner of the room. Arthur seemed about to wake, but drifted back into a deep sleep. He was still, though, holding tightly onto the sword. Morgan Le Fay swore under her breath. She had had a wasted journey and was still likely to be in big trouble once Arthur reached Camelot. She was about to leave and escape back to Gore to avoid King Arthur's wrath when she spotted something. Next to Arthur's armour, a metre or two from the bed, was Arthur's scabbard. Morgan smiled. OK, she couldn't get anyone to kill Arthur with the scabbard, but she could play the long game. If Arthur didn't have the scabbard with him, then he could be killed. When he wore it, he could shed no blood. When he didn't wear it, he could bleed as much as the next man. Eventually, thought Morgan, this would play a part in his death. Eventually, many years later... It possibly did. Morgan Le Fay, very slowly and very quietly, picked up the scabbard and sneaked out of the room. When King Arthur woke up, he immediately spotted what was wrong. Without stopping to get dressed, he rushed out of the bedroom and raged at the nuns. Who did you let in my room? You failed me. I was supposed to be safe here. But sire, replied the mother superior, Queen Morgan visited. We cannot disobey the commands of your sister. Arthur calmed down. 
I'm sorry, he said. You're not to blame for the treachery of my sister. Please make my horse ready quickly. If Sir Ontslake and I are fast enough, then we have a chance of catching up with Queen Morgan and retrieving my scabbard. King Arthur and Sir Ontslake were mounted and riding away within ten minutes. Before long, they passed a poor cowherd and asked him if he'd seen a rich-looking lady with a scabbard riding that way. They were in luck. He had indeed seen the woman, and he told them in which direction to ride. The two men, much enthused, galloped towards their prey. Not long later, they spotted her. Morgan Le Fay was riding, very quickly, into a forest. Just as they saw her, though, she spied them. She drove her horse on, faster and faster, and Sir Onslake and King Arthur lost sight of her in the forest. Still she drove her horse on, still faster and faster, faster than it had ever galloped before. She emerged from the forest a few minutes ahead of her pursuers. About a mile away was a lake. Morgan charged towards it. "'My brother will never have this scabbard,' she whispered to herself. With that, she threw the enchanted protector into the deepest waters of the lake. As soon as she had thrown the scabbard, Morgan Le Fay heard the sound of horses. Swiftly, she mounted her horse and rode quickly into a rocky valley. There, she cast a spell on herself, which made her and her horse take the shape of rocks. When Arthur and Sir Ontslake arrived, they couldn't tell that Morgan was there. She looked just like one of the boulders. Disappointed and angry, Arthur rode back to Camelot, Sir Ontslake following him in silence. Morgan rode back to the safety of the Kingdom of Gore. Back in Camelot, Arthur was welcomed by Guinevere and his knights. He told them all of the treachery of his sister. Many of the knights of the Round Table called for Morgan the Witch to be burned. Arthur refused, but declared he would have his revenge on his sister, in a way the whole world would tell the tale. The next morning, Arthur received a visitor. A lady from the court of Queen Morgan arrived, carrying a present from her mistress to the king. "'Sire,' she announced, "'your sister sends you this gift. She is most dreadfully sorry for what she has done, and she is mortified that she has offended you. She asks that you accept this gift, and wonders if you have it in your heart to forgive her.' With that, she proffered the gift. It was a magnificent mantle a kind of cloak worn by knights as an overcoat. Arthur looked at his present. It was indeed a very fine mantle indeed. He was about to put it on when a thought occurred to him. He realised he had a funny feeling about the mantle and wondered what to do. He then realised what was wrong. Merlin wasn't there. The wizard had always been around to give him advice when he felt something was wrong, and now he wasn't there. Arthur looked round and spotted one of the ladies of the lake walking towards him. Sir, said the lady, I advise you not to put this mantle on until you know it is safe. There's only one way to find out if it is actually a gift from your sister or just another attempt on your life. Why don't you ask the lady who brought it here to put it on? Arthur nodded and beckoned the woman to come over. I would like to see this mantle on you before I wear it. The lady looked horrified. This is a king's garment. I couldn't even dream of putting it on, she replied. Do it anyway, ordered King Arthur. The lady put on the mantle. For a moment nothing happened. The lady seemed about to breathe a sigh of relief when she became unable to breathe at all. She fell down dead on the spot and then was consumed by fire. Before long, 
All that was left of the lady and the mantle was a pile of smoking ash. Arthur looked on, both relieved and highly annoyed. The king turned to King Urien's. My sister, your wife, has tried to kill me more than once. Normally, I would suspect that you were working with her because you wanted my throne for yourself. It seems unlikely in this case, though, since my treacherous sister tried to kill you too. Acalon confessed that to me. I hear your son found out about his mother's plan and forgave her. It seems to me that Sir Uwain may know more than he is letting on. I cannot risk having traitors in Camelot. Sir Uwain is hereby expelled from my court and is no longer a knight of the round table. Uwain was told of King Arthur's decision. The poor knight, son of Morgan le Fay and nephew of King Arthur, was no traitor, but the king's decision was final. Many men would have either cried and begged or got angry and raged in their defence. Sir Uwain did neither of these things. He calmly and gracefully accepted King Arthur's decision. The poor innocent knight prepared to leave the court. As he was leaving, Sir Gawain stepped forward. Sir Uwain was his cousin and he knew he wasn't a traitor. King Arthur's eldest nephew announced that if Sir Uwain was no longer welcome at court, then nor was he. He picked up his things and saddled his horse. The two cousins rode from Camelot together, while Arthur looked on, wondering if he had done the right thing. As he was wondering, he happened to glance over the round table to the other side of the room. There, looking sad and contemplative, was Sir Gawain's brother, Gaheris. The young man got up from his seat and walked over to King Arthur. Sir, he said sadly but firmly, we have lost two good knights today for the sake of one, and he is no traitor. The young man bowed briefly before his king. Arthur, impressed by the bravery, reflected that one day, when he was old enough, Gaheris would make a good knight. Sir Uwain and Sir Gawain rode out of Camelot through a forest. They hadn't really made any plans, so they decided to go in search of adventure. It wasn't long before they found it. In the forest they came upon a knight who challenged them both to a joust. Sir Uwain went first after announcing to his cousin that he'd better have the first go as he was not as strong or skilled as Sir Gawain. The knight defeated Sir Uwain and then challenged Gawain. Amazingly, Sir Gawain was knocked from his horse by the knight, but he jumped up and drew his sword. The fight between Sir Gawain and the knight was fierce, and Gawain was winning when his strength, due to a magical enchantment, began to wane. Every day, Gawain's strength became greater and greater until midday. After midday, he became weaker. He was still strong, but not quite the warrior he was in the morning. Both knights agreed that the other was a fine warrior, and agreed to call it a draw. The knight announced he was Sir Marhaus, son of the King of Ireland. He welcomed the two cousins into his home, and fed them a sumptuous meal. Afterwards, the three knights, by now the firmest of friends, rode out together to find adventure. After seven days riding around, not finding much adventure at all, the three knights came upon three women sitting by a fountain. The knights and ladies got chatting, and Sir Gawain explained that they were looking for something to do, which was a bit more exciting than simply riding around forests. The ladies stood up. One was an older lady of about sixty, one was younger, probably about thirty, and the last was a girl of about fifteen. The eldest one spoke. Well, that's handy, she said. We are here to lead knights into adventure. Each of you must choose to take one of us with you, and at least one of you will have a very fine adventure. 
Sir Uwain spoke first. I am the weakest of the three of us, he said. I think I need to be accompanied by somebody wise. He looked at the older woman. Lady, I would be grateful if you would accompany me. The lady nodded, and it was agreed. They would meet at that very spot exactly one year later and see if any of them had had a great adventure. Sir Uwain and the older lady rode west. Sir Marhaus, who chose to be accompanied by the lady of about thirty, rode south. Sir Gawain, who was left with the fifteen-year-old, rode north. Sir Gawain and his, and his companion met with a knight called Sir Pelias. The poor knight was in love with a lady called the Lady Etard. Despite doing many brave and honourable things to try and get the lady to love him in return, she simply wouldn't. She wouldn't even consider letting Sir Pelias anywhere near her, despite the fact that Pelias was sure she loved him really. Sir Gawain and Sir Pelias came up with an idea. Gawain would pretend that he'd killed Sir Pelias and then ride to the Lady Etard's castle and tell her. Maybe then her true feelings would be revealed. The plan backfired. Etard was not even remotely sad that Pelias was dead. Pelias realised he was not going to get anywhere. When the Lady of the Lake put a spell on Etard making her love Pelias, Pelias decided he wasn't interested any more. Poor Lady Etard died from sorrow. All in all, it was a total disaster, although Pelias later went to Camelot and became a knight of the Round Table. After the year was up, Sir Gawain and the girl rode back to the meeting place, where they were due to rejoin Sir Marhaus and Sir Uwain. Sir Marhaus was already there with his lady. He had had a much more exciting adventure than Gawain. This was his story. Marhaus encountered and fought with a knight called the Duke of the South Marshes and his six sons. Having beaten them, he met up with Earl Fergus, who told him that his lands were being ruined, ravaged by a mad giant. The huge man ate everything in sight, and destroyed what he couldn't eat. Poor Earl Fergus was desperate. Soon there would be no farmland or building left, and he and his people would starve or die from the cold. Sir Marhaus, deciding that taking on a giant was definitely real adventure, offered to help. He put on his best armour, fixed his best shield on his arm, and rode out to meet the giant. The giant was a good fighter, as well as having the tiny advantage of being a giant. With the first blow of his giant club, he smashed into Marhaus's shield and broke it in two. Sir Marhaus, wondering if he really wanted adventure at all, jumped aside as the next blow came down. Realising he was going to die unless he did something spectacular, Sir Marhaus leapt into the air. Before the giant had time to react, Marhaus swung his sword. The leap was mighty and the strike was perfect. The giant was unable to wield his club again as with his perfect blow, Sir Marhaus had cut off his right arm. The giant fled and strode into the middle of a lake. The water was too deep for Sir Marhaus, so he collected a large number of stones from the water's edge. One by one, he threw the stones at the giant's head. With only one arm left to defend himself, the giant couldn't deflect all the stones from their path. Soon, one hit him squarely on the forehead. The giant fell, with an almighty splash, dead into the water. Earl Fergus offered Sir Marhaus half of his lands as a reward. Sir Marhaus said no. He was happy to have helped. He did stay with Earl Fergus for six months, though, before travelling to the meeting place on the agreed day. Sir Uwain, it seemed, had chosen well when he asked the older lady to accompany him. They had many fine adventures before she took the knight to see the Lady of the Rock. 
She told Sir Uwain that she had been robbed of her lands by two brother knights known as Sir Edward of the Red Castle and Sir Hugh of the Red Castle. Sir Uwain, sensing adventure, offered to speak with the knights. Sir Edward and Sir Hugh were sent for. They came the following morning. With them they brought a hundred men. The Lady of the Rock refused to let Sir Uwain approach them, as there were a hundred and two of them and just one of him. She knew the knights of the Red Castle well, and didn't trust them not to set all their men on Sir Uwain and kill him on the spot. She brought Sir Uwain to the top of a small tower, and they shouted down to Sir Edward and Sir Hugh. Uwain accused the knights of stealing the ladies' lands and challenged one of them to fight for it. If the Red Knight lost, then all of the ladies' possessions were to be handed back. This seemed fair, but the knights of the Red Castle refused. In unison, they shouted that they always fought together. If Sir Uwain was to win back the ladies' lands, he would have to fight both of them at once. This was clearly grossly unfair, but Sir Uwain wanted adventure. He agreed to fight Sir Edward and Sir Hugh the following morning. The next morning was bright and cold. Sir Uwain rode out to the jousting field and found his opponents waiting for him. Sir Edward rode at him first, but Sir Uwain knocked him from his horse. Sir Hugh fared no better, also finding himself on the ground. Both knights recovered quickly and drew their swords. Sir Uwain, pleased with his efforts so far, pulled his own sword from its sheath and leapt from his mount. Sir Uwain was a better swordsman than either of the brothers read. But there were two of them, and only one of him. Uwain was wounded again and again, and the Lady of the Rock begged him to stop fighting. She was so sure he was going to die. For five hours they fought, two against one. As his strength failed, Sir Uwain summoned up all of his courage and prepared for a final assault. He managed one last mighty strike, which hit Sir Edward on the head. Sir Edward's helmet was not up to the force of the strike, and the sword went through and into his brain. Sir Uwain turned to Sir Hugh and was about to do the same. Sir Hugh looked down at his dead brother. Realising that since two of them were no match for Uwain, one of them stood no chance at all, he knelt down and yielded. Sir Uwain commanded Sir Hugh to go to Camelot at the next Feast of Pentecost and tell how he had been defeated. The Lady of the Rock had her lands and property restored. Sir Uwain and his companion stayed with her until his wounds had healed and it was time to meet up with Sir Gawain and Sir Marhouse and the other ladies. The three knights told each other their tales. They concluded they'd succeeded in finding adventure and wondered what to do next. They rode away from the ladies and into a forest where they were stopped by a man who looked like a messenger. Sir Uwain and Sir Gawain, I have been searching for you for nearly twelve months. I am a messenger from the court of King Arthur. The king offers his apologies to Sir Uwain, who, he knows, is no traitor. He and Queen Guinevere would be very pleased if you would return to Camelot and take up your sieges at the round table. Twelve days later, they were back in Camelot. Sir Marhaus and Sir Pelias were also made knights of the round table, and there was a great feast to celebrate. Camelot was a happy place once more. All of the knights had returned, and the treacherous Morgan le Fay was many miles away. Deep in the back of his mind, Arthur knew that losing his enchanted scabbard would prove calamitous eventually. For now, though, all was good. Next week, we will see some good old-fashioned revenge being taken, and Sir Gawain will have a strange adventure. Until then, 
Have a great week, and I'll speak to you next time.